Our scripture reading this morning is Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Well, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a delight to be with you this morning. Just driving up to this beautiful church building just brought back so many wonderful memories. Even walking through the front door, I just recalled the many years that I've enjoyed worshiping here at First Evan, the partnership uh, with First Evan and Second Presbyterian. And by the way, I bring you greetings from Dr. George Robertson and all the congregation there, some of your best friends at Second Presbyterian Church. And I also bring you greetings from the Gospel Coalition. It's been my pleasure to serve them as interim president until they can find someone actually qualified to be permanent president. Uh, and I'm glad to do so because I believe so strongly in what the Gospel Coalition has been doing. So it's a delight to be here, you especially on this Sunday, Reformation Sunday, as Ken has explained and as we have all celebrated. Something really important on October 31st, 506 years ago, took place. And that was that Martin Luther, the old monk uh, from Germany who had become a Bible scholar and Bible professor at the university, he posted on the left-hand door uh, of the Wittenberg Church a series of principles that were meant to be posted like a bulletin board uh, for the uh, faculty and all academics to debate. And because of that, it was written in Latin it was meant to be read only by academics. Luther had some concerns that you know had arisen because he had seen Johann Tetzel appealing to his people to give uh, money for St. Peter's Cathedral, which you can see today, of course, in Rome. It was built with these indulgences. And Tetzel was encouraging people to put money in the coffer and their relatives would spring free from purgatory with these gifts. It was just an awful perversion of what real repentance is, as we know from the Bible. Luther was concerned about that, that it perverted repentance. And he thought it deserved an academic debate. And later in his life, of course, he was quite convinced that if the Pope had ever heard about this, he would agree with Luther, uh, which turned out not to be the case whatsoever. 
but and as it turned out not to be the case, of course, Luther continued to prosecute his opinions. Well, this Latin document was translated by some young German lads into Germany. And as you know, the Gutenberg Press had just been invented. And there were four presses that right away published this thing. It went everywhere. Uh, if they had had social media in those days, it would have hit the wires and would have been viral. It went viral in the 16th century terms uh, of that word. And so within a few months, virtually everybody in Germany knew about Martin Luther. And they knew about the dispute. It was everywhere. Luther had come to this conclusion, of course, by in his professorship, he had studied the Psalms and had lectured and written on the Psalms. You can see his commentaries. He also had been teaching Galatians. He had been teaching Romans. And in 1513 through 1516, he had been lecturing on Romans. And he came to a discovery that we'll talk more about in a few moments that prompted this 95 Theses. Well, following that, uh, Albert of Mainz, uh, who was a prince, he got the document in Germany, and he forwarded it to Leo X, the Pope. And the Pope was not particularly happy, and he said that this monk, Luther, will get over this when he sobers up from his drunkenness. Well, of course, as you know, Luther never sobered up, and we are stuck with the Protestant Reformation, thanks be to God. So, Leo began to put pressure through his cardinals on Luther. And you'll remember eventually because Luther, uh, as the issue was pressed on repentance, the issue led to justification, which we'll talk about this morning, and then it led to the authority of scriptures, which we've celebrated, versus the authority of the Pope. So there was a massive dispute here. And it got more and more heated, as you know, because heat was being put on Luther and he was responding. So eventually, Pope Leo X uh, excommunicated Luther. Now, it's one thing to be excommunicated today, civilly. It virtually means nothing in civic society. It means something in the church to be excommunicated, but not in civic society. In that day, it meant a lot because the church would use the state and partner with the state not only to punish disobedient people ecclesiastically, but to punish them civilly in the, under state law. And of course, with King Charles V, who is the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, the Pope would expect the emperor to make life very difficult for Luther. So you remember that Luther was convened at the, the Diet, or we, we call it Diet in English, uh, of worms, uh, once again, worms in Germany. But the Diet of Worms was convened in 1521. This is four years after the 95 Theses. Luther went against advice because everyone knew his life was at stake. And he went before the emperor and the cardinals challenged Luther to recant of his writings. And you remember his famous statement, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. Now, that was after asking for a 24-hour recess so he could think about it uh, because Luther knew that his life was at stake. Well, you'll remember that uh, when Luther left Worms, he was kidnapped by friendly people who took him off to be uh, in exile 
for a number of months uh, to hide from the authorities because after appearing before King Charles V, now there was an imperial ban on Luther so that any individual in the entire Roman Empire, Holy Roman Empire, it was neither holy nor Roman actually, but it was called the Holy Roman Empire, any individual could take Luther's life with impunity. So because of the ban of the emperor, now anybody could murder Luther without consequences. Luther lived the next 25 years of his life under that ban. His preaching, his lectures in Leipzig and Augsburg and other places, all of those lectures, all of those sermons, all of his public ministry, all of his writings. Now, later, of course, having married Katie, his dear wife, who was a nun that he delivered safely, and then she needed a husband, so he married her. And they had children and a delightful marriage and household. They were all at risk for 25 years until Luther died in 1546. Now, why in the world would a man risk his life, his wife's life, and his children's lives over some doctrines that we just celebrated a moment ago? Why would anybody do that? Here's why. Luther had discovered a treasure. And in this dispute, the thing he treasured the most was at risk. Now you know that Jesus taught us that the kingdom of God is like a treasure. That a man hid in the field and then he sold everything that he had to buy that field so he could have the treasure. So Jesus had taught us that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're involved with a great treasure, and that is what is motivating a lot of what you do. Now, of course, the highest motive is the glory of God. But what we see with Luther, it was the glory of God, sola gratia, but it was also his experience. He was a visceral man, and he had discovered a treasure, and he was determined that no one would take that treasure out of his heart nor out of the German church's heart or out of the nation of Germany. He wanted to preserve the treasure. That's what explains Luther. That's what explains the Apostle Paul. If you're a believer, that's what explains you. Now, as we look at the text that Carrie read just a moment ago, and if you would open your Bibles back up to Philippians 3 so you can follow along, I want to make some observations in this text in the moments that we have. I want you to notice in the text, and I'm going to make four major points with you, and I'll try to let you know when something I say is a major point. <laughs> The first one is overall on the entire 11 verses. I want to make a point about this. And here's the point. The treasure, the Christian's treasure, is knowing Jesus Christ. That's the treasure. Now, why do I say that? You see it in verse 1, where he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice what? In the Lord. You know 
If you've studied Philippians recently, you'll remember that the phrase in the Lord or in him or in Christ is found 18 times in Philippians. In fact, most scholars would suggest there's your theme of Philippians. What does it mean to be in union with Jesus Christ? That's the treasure. And furthermore, as you go, go down the text, you'll see in verse 8, for example, that he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then look in verse 9. He says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Look at verse 10. That I may know him. You see the passion of the Apostle Paul that's going to drive us through this entire text. He has a treasure, and that treasure is knowing Jesus Christ. Now, of course, in the English word know, it usually suggests a, 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 an intellectual phenomenon that I know about something, that I know who Jesus is, he's a friend of mine, so on, so forth, and I can describe him for you. That's what it means to know Christ in English. The Greek and actually Hebrew words that we translate know or knowledge often mean something more than that. It certainly includes that, but it also involves an intimate relationship. So, for example, you know from the King, King James Version, Adam knew Eve. What does that mean? It means they had intimate relationships. That's what the word know often means. So if you ask me, do you know Allison, your wife? Oh, yes, I can tell you all about Allison. I know about her. But I know Allison because we're married. So what the apostle is saying, I'm married. I know him. I have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's my treasure. And my dear friends, if that's not your treasure this morning, I hope that's the main outcome for you today, that you discover a treasure. And I'm going to tell you where it will lead you. It will lead you to the passion of this man, the apostle Paul, in chapter 3. You will find yourself growing in this direction if you come to know him. Now, I want you to notice one of the first things that will happen to you if you seek to know Christ, and this is the second major point, that this treasure of knowing Christ brings us great joy. Great joy. Look at the first verse. Paul, it almost seems as though he's speaking out of context here. He's just finished talking about Timothy and, and Epaphroditus, and now he's getting ready to talk about justification. And he throws in this verse about joy. Why does he do that? Oh, I'll tell you why. Because what he's getting ready to talk about brings him great joy. He says to them, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. The typical view of joy in the first century Greco-Roman world among the dominant philosophical tradition of the day would have been that joy comes from contemplations. It's the philosopher who has joy. And uh, to add to that, there is an ethical component. It's called the good life, which was a virtuous life. 
So many of the Greek philosophers, especially the Stoics, and Paul borrowed from the Stoics in his own ethical instructions. He was very aware of them. And they taught that joy comes from living the good life that is derived from higher level contemplations of the philosopher. There's real human joy. Paul stands up in the middle of first century Greco-Roman sophisticated world and he says, no, no. My joy comes in the Lord. It's from an intimate relationship with him. And he challenges the very foundations of happiness, which of course we still do today. You can Google happiness and you'll get all kinds of very helpful little instructions. But the Christian rises up and says, those things can't even light a candle to the beam of light and joy that comes from knowing my Savior. That's what Paul is saying. That this treasure that we have, and that alone, Christ alone, brings us this joy, the joy of knowing him. Now here's my third main point. We've seen, first of all, that Christians have a treasure, and that treasure is knowing Christ. Secondly, this treasure brings us great joy. And of course, we wouldn't want anybody to rip this out of our hands. Paul speaks of joy 16 times, one way or another, rejoicing or joy or joyful in Philippians. It's obviously a, a, a theme as well. And you'll remember from whence Paul is writing this letter. You know he's in uh, house arrest in Rome, probably in chains hand and foot to a guard on four-hour shifts. Meanwhile, you'll remember what the Roman preachers and evangelists were doing. They were jealous of his great reputation. And therefore, to get him into more trouble, Paul explains in chapter 1, they were preaching more loudly than ever before because it would keep Paul in prison longer. You ever had your feelings hurt? Well, that'll hurt a preacher's feelings. So the reason you're preaching out there on the street is so that I am in more trouble with the authority. Thank you very much. That would be my response. That wasn't Paul's. Paul's was one of joy. Why? Because his joy didn't come either from his own reputation nor from his civil freedoms. His joy came from proclaiming Christ. And he said, whether by pure motive or pretense, either one, I will rejoice because Christ is proclaimed, even by these jealous preachers. And he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. It's throughout the letter. From the most difficult sorts of circumstances. Why? Because the primary circumstance of his life was that he was in Christ and he knew him. So those are the first two things we've seen. Now the third one, I already told you, I was going to give you a major point and I didn't even give you one, did I? This treasure must be defended. It must be protected because it's under attack. If it's true 
that joy is one of the main themes of the Christian life, and it is. And if it's true that the Christian ethic is empowered by Holy Spirit joy, which it is, then if you're the devil, and for some of you that's not hard to imagine, if you're the devil, then tell me what your strategy would be. I want to rip that joy out of their hearts. And the way I'm going to do that is to take the treasure out of their heart, which is their intimate union with Christ. That's going to be my strategy. And you'll see that's precisely what the devil has done since the gospel of Jesus Christ was given to us. That's his strategy. And it was in Paul's day. So Paul says, now we're at verse 2, and we're going to look at verses 2 through 9, and we're going quickly because I've got my eye on the clock. You don't have to watch your watch. I'm watching it. <laughs> Paul is saying in verses 2 through 9, look, you've got to watch out. He says watch out three times. Look out. Watch out. And the reason is this is serious business. And he calls these joy stealers, these joy thieves, these treasure thieves, he calls them dogs. Now, just this morning, I waked up to my cute little dog looking me in the face. I love my cute little dog. His name is Wowsy. And the reason is, my wife, Allison, I call Alzie. When I was in college, they called me Wilsey. So we got Alzie, Wilsey, and Wowsy. <laughs> and my little doggy is a golden doodle, and he's just the cutest thing. That's not what Paul means. He's not talking about your cute little dog. He's talking about those wild dogs that are dangerous, that eat your animals, that nobody wants to have around. They're dogs. They're dreaded. And you'll remember that Jewish people unkindly called the Gentiles dogs. Why? Because dogs are outside the house. They're brutal. They're ignorant. They're animals. And that's what the Jews called the Gentiles. Now, who are these people that Paul is calling dogs? Well, actually, ironically, they're Jewish people. He's reversing the tables. He says the Jews use this language, you know, about Gentiles. Let me tell you Gentiles and Jewish converts something. Those people are the dogs. They're the ones on the outside. They're the ones who are tearing everything up. They're the ones that you're to dread. Why is this? What, who were these dogs and what were they doing? These dogs were actually inside the visible church. They professed faith in Jesus Christ, but they added to it. They were called Judaizers. So they had a Jewish background and they said, yes, in order to be God's people and to be saved, you've got to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And you must identify, you must have the markers of being God's people, which is watch out for the dietary laws, keep the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week on Saturday, as we would call it, and the men must be circumcised on the eighth day. That's the marker of being God's people. And it was, as you know, a huge debate in the first century, and Paul dealt with this over and over again. Not only at the first General Assembly in Acts 15 was that the subject of debate, 
But certainly in Galatians, we read from just a few moments ago, Paul has to press his case there. Why? Paul had been evangelizing Gentiles, as you know, in Asia Minor, and now here in Philippi, in Europe as well, and now in Rome. So he'd made, in his three missionary journeys, uh, at least those journeys, he had been preaching to Gentiles. And a lot of Jews had a problem with that. But he insisted on it. And the reason was because of the commandment of God to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. It was because of what Jesus said in the Great Commission, but it was also because of the very nature of Christian salvation, that it transcends religious ethnicity by its very nature. So Paul taught, if you restrict this to one group, you have distorted the gospel itself. And that's exactly what the Judaizers were doing. They were distorting the gospel itself. Now the debate, you'll see the word righteousness three times in our text. So the debate that Paul is having now with the Philippians to strengthen them in this debate was to talk about the concept of righteousness. And he says you're going to have to guard this issue. Now there are several ways in which you could lose the treasure. You could lose this treasure at First Evangelical Church by being swamped with greed and, or other moral corruption. You could lose the treasure in this church by being divisive with one another and not being kind to one another. There are many ways in which you could lose your treasure here. But Paul is speaking about losing the treasure by attacking it at its root. And at its root, how are you going to have an intimate relationship with someone when you've been that person's enemy? By your very conception and birth, you were born a sinner. You were conceived a sinner. You are Christ's enemy by nature. How in the world are you going to have a marriage with him? How are you going to be intimate with him? You have to be justified. And the word in Greek for justify means righteous. So justification and righteous, same word. You have to be righteous. You can't be unrighteous and have an intimate relationship with the righteous one himself. You have to be righteous. So here's the problem. Righteousness is who God is. He is righteous. There's not a shadow of turning with him. There's not one hint of evil in God. He is purely righteous. Secondly, with regard to righteousness, he demands righteousness in anyone who would come to him and be intimate with him. Thirdly, you are not righteous by nature and neither am I. Paul cites the Psalms, you'll remember, in Romans chapter 3. He says, there is none righteous. And to emphasize it, he says, no, not one. So everybody on the planet is disqualified. Now there's your problem. How do the Jew, Judaizers seek to solve this problem? These men in the church who followed Paul all around Asia Minor and Europe, when he would start a church, they would come in and try to teach their doctrine to that church plant. And that's what they were doing in Philippi. Paul had evangelized and planted the church, and now they're coming in, and they're trying to convince them of these Judaistic doctrines, that you have Christ and all the markers of being Jewish, if you're a Gentile, in order to be in God's family. So that's how did they plan to make you right with God? that you had to have all the markers. So Paul is saying, first of all, in defending your treasure, 
you have to renounce all of your legal human righteousness. And Paul gives his own testimony. He says to these folks, you'll see it in in verse 3, we are the circumcision, he says to Gentiles who have not been circumcised. You with me? He's talking to Jews and Gentiles, and he says to them, including the Gentiles, you are circumcised. They say, I'm not circumcised. Oh, yes, you are. I'll tell you why. You worship by the Spirit. You glory in Jesus Christ. And you renounce all the works of the flesh for your standing with God. Therefore, you are the Israel of God. You are the circumcised. It's an enormously important statement. There are many other places in Pauline literature and Johannine and Petrine literature where you get the same idea, where the apostles are trying to convince Jews and Gentiles together in the church of Jesus Christ, you're the heirs of the promises. You're the circumcised. So he says, these dogs are trying to take away your circumcision. They're trying to take away your marker. Well, what is your marker? We have a righteousness. And it's not what the Judaizers are offering. We have a righteousness that is perfect. It is complete. It is unshakable. It is impenetrable. It is eternal and unchanging. It, ladies and gentlemen, is nothing other than the full righteousness of the righteous one himself, Jesus Christ. Now, I hear some Christians say from time to time, you know, I'm just getting into the kingdom on the coattails of Jesus. Well, that's one way to say it, but it's not the best way to say it. You're not on the coattails, ladies and gentlemen. You're in his heart. You're in him. And he's in you. And being in him, one of the things that happens is that you get his credits. You get his righteousness. And this is the reason that Paul, giving his own testimony, says, look, if you want to talk about religious attainments, let me give you my diplomas. Here's what he says. Verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I'll tell you right off the bat, I got more than you have. I've got more than these Judaizers have. They think they have credits? Let me tell you what my credits are. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the Bible says in the Old Testament. I did it. My parents did it. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm a full citizen of the nation of Israel. I actually am of the tribe of Benjamin. And you'll remember the value of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. If you're a Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. There's no one more Hebrew than me, he says. And furthermore, when it comes to the law, you want to know how much of the law I know and what my conformity to it is? I'm a Pharisee. So nobody has more credentials than I do when it comes to the Jewish regulations. Those are my credentials. Now let me tell you my performance. You want to know if I'm zealous? As a Jew, I put people in prison because they were Christians. That's how zealous I was. I took it to the full measure. And you want to talk about righteousness, that is conformity to the law of God? 
blameless. Now, of course, Paul told elsewhere he wasn't really blameless when one interprets the law properly. That is, with all of its implications and all of its motivations, Paul says, I'm a lousy sinner, undeserving of God's favor. But from a pharisaical point of view, not one person had any complaints against me relative to the law. Blameless. But look how he renounces it. And this is, this is the first thing you do with your defense. You renounce all of your personal righteousness. He says, but whatever gain I had, whatever credit I would give myself, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, folks, these are not bad things he's talking about. He's not talking about all of his sins, which are lost. He's talking about all of his good things. And what does Isaiah say about all of our good stuff? It's like filthy rags. When you're at your best, not your worst, when you're at your best, it is all a loss. He uses the word we see in the ESV in verse uh, 9, is it? Uh, Verse 8. Rubbish. That word could be translated dung. Skubalon in Greek. If you want to get a good Greek word, you can say skubalon. And that means dung. So Wowsy skubaloned my backyard last night. And that's what Paul says about the best things he could ever take credit for. It's total rubbish. And it's rubbish because it takes you away from knowing how desperately needy you are. That's what good things do. That's what your diplomas do. That's what all the compliments you get does from time to time. Makes us proud and we forget that that's rubbish. It could never stand before our righteous judge. So we renounce our righteousness. But then notice secondly what Paul does. He receives the righteousness of Jesus. He says, I renounce these things so that I may gain Christ and be in him, having a righteousness not of my own, but a righteousness that comes through faith. Now, this is challenged all the time. It's challenged in your conscience. I notice as we get older and you end up on your your last bed and you're talking to your pastor and some of you who have been Protestant evangelical Christians all your life will say something like this to your pastor. You know, I I hope I'm good enough. You say, I'd never say that. Watch yourself. When you get old and you know you're dying, it starts to attack you. Could I really be a child of God? Could I really be qualified for eternal life with him? Oh, but I think all of those things I said to my spouse, I think of the things that I did to my parents. I think about all the ugly immorality in the back of my life. How could I possibly? And all these things begin to come to you when you're under pressure. Because you see what the devil does. He's got dogs that plant the seed. Well, you need more than Jesus. And then the devil comes in and says, well, if you need more, you're lost because you don't have it. And that's called discouragement. It's one of his favorite tactics. Paul says, I renounce all of that, the agenda of the dogs, in order to have the righteousness of Christ. Now, I said, righteousness is of God. He demands it of us, and we don't have it. But fourthly, on righteousness, we get it in Christ. 
And this is the battle of the Reformation. The medieval church of Luther's day says, oh, we believe you have to have righteousness in order to enter paradise. And that righteousness is what is infused in you as you walk with Jesus and participate in the sacraments, particularly the communion, mass. Luther said, no. We believe in infused righteousness as evangelical Protestant Christians. That's in the Bible, too, that we grow in our conformity to Christ. It's called sanctification. But what you priests and cardinals are talking about is justification. And if you want to be justified by God based on your sanctification, you're lost. Because your sanctification is never perfect. It's never pure. It's filthy rags at its best. No, you need something eternal, unchangeable, in toto, the whole package. And you get that not by infusion of Christ's righteousness. Watch this word. You get it by imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's an accounting procedure. It's simply reckoned to you. It's put on your account. Why? Who knows? We call it grace. God loves sinners. Why would he do such a thing? Well, ultimately to glorify his name. And he is glorified when sinners like me end up with him because solely of the righteousness he has given me. This is what changed Luther's life. Before this discovery in his study of Romans, he admitted that he hated God as a monk because God's righteous, he's demanding righteousness, and I don't have it. That's all the righteousness Luther had. That's all the knowledge he had, and that led him to hate God. But when he hit principle number four, and he understood that when the righteous live by faith, that's the secret. That's the root of the treasure. That's how I'm going to be intimate with him because I'm made acceptable, because his total righteousness is simply imputed to me, and there's not a thing I can do to dent it. That changes everything. And now instead of hating God, Luther said, it was, he says, as though I were born again, and I walked into paradise through open gates. Some would say it was even his conversion when he was professor of sacred theology, and he made this great discovery and he spent the rest of his life under risk of losing it with his family because he found the treasure now lastly in verses 10 and 11 we find not only that the Christian's treasure is knowing Christ, this treasure brings us great joy, this treasure must be protected from the thieves but this joy is greater than all other joys it's greater than everything. Look what he says. That I may know him. What does it mean to know him? He gives us three things. I experience the power of his resurrection. Right now, you and I, if we're in Christ, we are experiencing the power of his resurrection because when he was raised, we too were raised and seated at his right hand. Do you understand this? 
that you are at the right hand of God in his mind and heart. And he's bringing you there physically one day soon. We are filled with his spirit, which is the gift given as a result of his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to glory. He reminded his apostles, you'll be far better off without me physically because I'm going to send my spirit who lives not only with you, but in you. We are experiencing the power of his resurrection even now as believers. And Paul is encouraging the Philippians to use that power to be sure that others would know of this great gift of knowing Jesus Christ. And then secondly, he says, I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. What? Yes. I'm not a masochist, but I want to share in the life of Jesus Christ. I want to know him. And when he lived this life on this broken planet, he suffered So I want to walk with him. And I want to bear up under what he bore up under. I want to experience him. I want his power to be surging through my life. And I want to know the depth of the sufferings for the sake of the glory of God and for the sake of his church. And that's precisely what Paul says in Colossians 1.24. I rejoice in these sufferings completing or filling out the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church. We're on a mission, and our mission means we will suffer with him. And we don't enjoy the sufferings, but we enjoy the intimacy with Christ. And when I suffer for him, I'm enjoying him. And thirdly, he says, not just his resurrection, my resurrection. He says, so somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And what Paul means is this event, which from all human perspective is totally ridiculous and impossible, that when your body decays and goes into the grave, that somehow this body will be reconstituted. Who's going to do that? How will that ever happen? And this reconstituted body will not only look like you look now, which is about half good, but you're going to look like him. You're going to have your resurrection body and be the brother and sister of Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed. That brings unspeakable joy to anyone who believes it. But the one who attacks our very acceptance before God is the one who takes away the joy of the resurrection. Because without knowing you're accepted, you don't know that you're going to be resurrected. But if you know you're accepted, you know that this same God who sent his son to die on Calvary's cross to pay for my sins and lived a perfect life to give me a record of perfection this God who made that sacrifice to do that, Paul says, surely then, you know he'll bring it to completion with the resurrection. The same God who fulfilled all of his promises in our regeneration and our justification and our increasing sanctification will fulfill our glorification. I close with these words from Luther himself. He said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face, and declares that you deserve death and hell, 
tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. So what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Let us pray. Father, for this great salvation, which includes our justification before your throne of glory, we are in amazement. We are awestruck at the wondrous grace which would accomplish such an undeserved achievement for our joy. We pray that you'll fill us with this joy today, that you'll make us vigilant so that no one and no thing, not even the devil himself, steals our joy. And that we, Lord, treasure what you've done in giving us this gift of perfect righteousness, which brings such massively beautiful results in knowing Jesus, in sharing life with him, walking with him even in his sufferings, and one day being remade, transformed completely into his likeness. Glory, glory, glory be to your name, now and forevermore. Amen.